0: You're listening to Early Doors Football Podcast with host Mark Roach and co-host Dylan Kerr, Tom Watt and
1: Sherelle Casal, a For The Now media production.
0: Welcome to the Early Doors Football Podcast and we've got a great episode for you this week. We're joined once again by Martin Allen, who talks about coaching, the challenges that Manchester United are facing, the situation at Newcastle United and why he thinks England can win the World Cup this year. But before that, you might remember last week, I mentioned our exciting new partnership with NFT specialists, Niftify, which will be great for the Early Doors football podcast in terms of more brilliant guests. And we'll also be getting involved in some NFT projects around iconic moments and players. Now, if you don't know what an NFT is, it's essentially a digital artwork and a lot of current and ex-players are getting involved. So it's really going to be an exciting time ahead for us. And now we're joined again by Martin Allen. Martin, welcome back for your second appearance on the Early Doors Football Podcast. Good to see you again.
2: Yeah, nice to see you, Mark. Nice to see you, Dylan, as well.
0: Great to see you, Paul, as always. And Dylan, you, uh, you've you got an extended break, haven't you? Because you, your next match is not until... Middle of February, is it,
3: I think? Yeah, we've got the African Cup of Nations to watch and uh, enjoy. Uh, so, yeah, we've got... Uh, we had a, I took over this job on the 3rd of December, and by the 20th of December, we played six games in 17 days. You know, so it was a baptism of fire coming into a football club, which was bottom of the league. Uh, don't know the names, don't know the positions, don't know the calibre. And you're having to play uh, three times in a week. So it was very, very tough. So this break is going to do me the world of good. Uh, as Martin will know, that, you know, when, when you go to a club, you have to have at least a couple of weeks to find out who's what and what's who and who, who your players are and, and who you can trust and who, who are the born leaders, who are the ones that are wasting your time. And I never had that opportunity. So... Uh, I won one, drew three and lost two. Um, so six points out of 18 isn't good enough. But, you know, the potentials there and, and the possibilities are there to hopefully keep them in the league. But, you know, in, in, in South African football, it's, it's a very, very tough league because everybody's, everybody's similar to everybody else. So the only teams that are really, really, you know, above anybody else are Mamelodi Sundowns who are buying everybody and they, they've got the money. So, yeah, it's been tough. It's been tough, man. But
0: you've, uh, you've been in Durban, haven't you? You have a nice little uh, little holiday, or are you still working while you're there?
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm, well, I've been watching a few tournaments because in Christmas and New Year, they don't really celebrate it like we do in the UK. You know, it's, it's every day it's a holiday here because it's, you know, because of the weather and everybody, everybody from Johannesburg migrates to Durban or goes to Cape Town. So, you know, basically it's been keeping things. Um, you know, going, but you know we're supposed to report back on Wednesday, this is where Martin will not, well Martin will know that she's been to Africa. but you know on Wednesday we're supposed to report back for training. but as of yet, uh, the players have not received the December salaries. So they're not going to come back um, until you know the, 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 the checks are in their bank accounts. So again, you know it's, it's, it's a way of life here. You know, there's nothing I can do about it. Uh, but you know, I know my chairman is, is trying to find the money to make sure the players, you know, you know, get get what's, what's owed to them. But in the football climate where no supporters are, are still not allowed in the stadiums here, you know, finances are, are very, very restricted.
0: Uh, and Martin, um, we spoke to you back in August. Uh, you were telling us back then you were doing some gusto cooking, I think it was. What have you been up to since then, <laughs> since August?
2: Well, that hasn't changed. I'm still trying to do my bit, I'm trying to stay healthy and keep fit and trying to improve my golf. Walk my dog, Dennis, who sat right next to me. I don't know if you can see him. Look, there he yep. is coming out yeah, of the corner. See him. That's one of his little dog biscuits. So, no, still trying to live a decent, <laughs> um, decent life, really. Quite the opposite to what it seems like for Dylan. And I, I've obviously been in that situation where teams have been bottom of the league when I've taken over. And uh, it's very, very stressful for the manager, very, very difficult for the manager. And, um, you know, it's a real drain on your well being, on your mental well being, physical well being. And, um, you know, that's that's I, I probably have had or did have enough of that sort of situation that Dylan was uh, talking about. Um, I just don't really want to be that uh, that type of manager or person again.
3: Martin, <laughs> you know, like that, sorry, sorry, Mike. Going back on what we, we, we previously spoke about about you know how have difficulties now and you know somebody somebody asked me the other day and it was a really and it was an it was an English South African. Um, you know, he's been in South Africa 40 odd years and you know he's been out you know he, he emigrated with his, his dad and he said to me, he says, he doesn't, watch, he doesn't enjoy watching football anymore. He said, he doesn't, he, doesn't understand, he doesn't understand why, you know, it's changed the way it has with, you know, the VAR and the rules and the bilineal um, World Cup may happen and all that lot. He, and, he, and he's a massive, massive Man United fan. He's born in Ipswich, so Ipswich is his local team. You know, and it's it's really, really, you know, and, and to, to actually see a football fan like that actually, you know, sat in a bar, you know, on, on Boxing Day, you know, watching Boxing Day football, and he, and I'm saying, you're he, not watching this, you went, no, I, I just don't enjoy it anymore.
0: Uh, and Martin, I just wanted to come back to you on, on that note. When we spoke to you last time, we were talking about um, what job you'd like. I think you said manager of Barbados would be your ideal job. <laughs> um, but, you, but I remember you saying that um, when you when you were offered jobs, it was people approaching you. So you said you, you've never had an agent. Have, have you had any um, approaches since we last spoke about any opportunities? Yeah, I've had
2: a couple of um, couple of people give me a quick call and say, would you be interested? But normally they make those calls while there's still a manager in place. And in all honesty, I've uh, returned their calls and just said, no, it's not for me. Um, I, I don't really want to put myself through that anymore. I, I've got some nice little jobs that I do do. Um, working with West Ham, I do quite a lot of work with them. On, their, on I do all their work on match day hospitality. I do a little bit of work with the, uh, the Premier League on different little bits and pieces. And I do some work with the FA on a, little, a few little bits and pieces. So um, I've got plenty keeping my, me busy. Uh, keeping me ticking over and um, i can go and watch those games without the stress and without the uh, the drama and uh,
0: observe and uh, and enjoy and Dylan um his new role came about out of the blue i think Dylan wasn't it and you from finding out that the the you were in for the role to actually being offered the job was was um you know very short space of time is that martin is that how you feel that your next job might come about, something will come out of the blue that actually takes your fancy and you think, yeah, as long as everything's right for me, then then I'll go for it. Is, is that your no, thing?
2: Mark, there won't be anything right for me because I'm not going to do it. <laughs> it's uh, it's just, I just don't want to do it anymore. It, um, I think if you lose that drive and that motivation and that uh, desire um, and your positive energy and your enthusiasm and your motivation, uh, to be the first into the training ground, to be the last away from the training ground, to go home and have a kip, have a bit of tea, and then sort of six o'clock, um, get in the car, and then drive all over the country to watch, say, reserve games or lower level games where you might be able to sign players. I did that for I did that for 15 years, and um, it took its toll. You know, I was out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday nights. I never had a clue what was happening in East Enders. <laughs> um, it was like, that just wasn't, I didn't even know it was on or what was on. It just had no interest. So I was just total, total focus. And uh, once that starts to wane, um, being on the uh, M6 in traffic at 11 o'clock at night on the way back down from Manchester and you're not getting home till three in the morning because there's been a crash. Then you've got to be at the training ground for seven and then you've got to take training. It takes its toll. And if your results are not good and there's pressure from above, there's pressure in the media and you've got unhappy players, then um, it makes for not a nice life. And um, I've been there in a few situations like that. And I don't really want to put myself back into that scenario.
0: And and do you understand what Dylan was talking about with the fan who doesn't really enjoy watching football anymore with VAR? And do do you kind of... um, is there elements of that for, for you that you're not enjoying football in, in general as much these days, do you think?
2: Uh, well, I think the VAR is uh, improving. I think it was far better than the delays that we had um, Was it last year. I thought that that certainly put me off. But the, uh, the Premier League and the FA and or the referees, whatever they are, they've certainly improved it. Certainly has. It has improved. It needs tweaking. And it will be tweaked and it will keep getting better, but it's not something that's just gonna come from a couple of years ago, this new idea to be absolutely perfect in one hit. It's gonna take time.
4: Do I enjoy
2: the style of football now with all the possession and the keeping the ball, retaining possession, very few shots, teams defending with 11 in their own half to stop the opposition breaking through. It's certainly a different style of play. I saw Man City last week and they were absolutely unbelievable to watch at Brentford. It was a brilliant. I think every Brentford fan clapped them off as well at the end. It was just the most magnificent performance without a centre forward. Uh, Foden was playing in that look number 10, but not up front. So was Grealish. And I mean, can you imagine 10 years ago a center forward at five foot eight, five foot nine playing in English football? You could not. No one would have been able to predict that.
3: Yeah, but like I said, Martin, you know, when you, when you, when you said that game, you know, it, it's like, you know, and I'm going in from, from an African point of view, you know, I just, whether, we, 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 whether we're 2-0 up or 2-0 down, I just keep playing, go and play, as, as I did as a kid, as I did, you know, go and play, go and, go and express yourself. You've got the ball, all we can do as a coach is just help you. You know, and w- sometimes they listen, sometimes they don't. When they don't listen, it kills you, you know. But when they do listen, they get it spot on. And like I say, I've just watched
2: that. <laughs> and sometimes they listen and they're not good enough.
3: <laughs> well, yeah, I'll, I'll, to be honest, Ali, I'll, I'll, I will agree with you there. But, you know, and I'm trying to envisage this, this return to uh, my team as opposed supposed to come back on Wednesday. There's no way on earth, you know, I'm, I'm going to get them back on Wednesday. Maybe one or two will turn up. But I know the majority, because they haven't been paid, they're not going to come. And, that, and I just, that, that furiates me because I'm doing all, all the work myself. You know, and, and I'm like you, pedantic. I'm not driving up and down the motorways. I'm watching TV. I'm watching analysis. I'm trying to get everything right. Because it is a big, big job here, Martin. It's a massive job. Morocco Swallows are the, the oldest club in South African football. And as Mark said, I didn't expect the job. I got a phone call. I was walking to the pub. Uh, on the beach, it was 32 degrees, I get a phone call, my agent says, you've been to be at the airport for two, you've got to meet him with the chairman at four. Within 30 minutes, it convinced me that it was the right club, it was the right atmosphere, and his ambitions and his dreams, and then all of a sudden now, you know, I'm finding out that, you know, I've got, I've got a, another stumbling block in front of me, but it's my responsibility, I've got to do the, it's the, the onus is on me because I've got the job, so... I don't know, Martin, sometimes I think you've done the best thing in doing what you're doing. Um, because it, 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 it's what, the passion that you had as a player and as a manager, you know, other people have, do you not think other people have taken that away from you?
2: Um, no, I think as you get older, and um, I'd say very, uh, I got good advice when I was a young footballer from my dad to put my money that I made into my pension. And I, obviously, yeah. I didn't make millions because, you know, I was just bang average footballer. But everything I made went into my pension. Um, so I always knew in the back of my mind, my, my sort of retirement date would be 55. And uh, believe it or not, uh, I was 55 last year, believe it or not. And um, so I had my pension to live on. Um, yeah. Kind of, I think, in the back of my mind, you would know, probably subconsciously, that you were going to work through to that 55 period and then just say, well, hopefully I should have enough and just to be, not comfortable, but just to be able to live okay. Um, and don't, certainly don't get me wrong. I'm not super rich. I ain't got a great big house and a, a Ferrari, um, but I can just live okay and be comfortable um, yeah. rather than put myself uh, for probably my last 10 years uh, through the, uh, the asshole that uh, is involved in uh, running a football club.
3: So, you, you, I know you mentioned about the dynamics of football, like it's possession based now. And, you know, what, what, why has it changed, you know, so much from when, when both, I mean, I'm a year younger than you, from, from when we both played? You know, the emphasis was get a corner, get a get as many shots at goal, get as many crosses in the box, make sure that you, you hit the big man up front and, and, and either run him behind for the flick on or, you know, support him. You know, and you know, why do you think that's the dynamics in football has changed, especially in the last four, five, six years?
2: Yeah, that's a real um, big, big question, and um, it's probably a long discussion. Uh, My answer to that would be: um, we've all watched England in the big competitions, stood round having a barbecue wearing our England shirts, whole country coming to a standstill and then we see England play in the big tournaments and the other countries have retained possession, passed us off the pitch and beaten us or we've sometimes scored from a worldie or a set play. The introduction of academies and an improvement in younger coaches to educate young coaches to study ball retention um different styles of football from south america and from spain overloading the midfield having rotations of positions we never had all that sort of stuff that never happened even with the liverpool team it never happened But now it does happen. And when we watch England play, we're dominating possession. And our players through the academy system from many, many years ago, I think it was Howard Wilkinson, of touches of the football, skills with the ball individually. We never had, we we used to rave about Glenn Hoddle. And then there was Paul Gascoigne, um, maybe a bit of Chris Waddle, yes, some John Barnes. But now the overall skill level, you'll see centre backs being able to bring the ball down out the sky and clip it with the outside of their boot out to the fullback. You even see goalkeepers now playing as an extra player. So the whole concept of coaching, training and managing the players, because the players have got a different mindset to when we were brought up. We were brought up was if, if you were going to get told off or I was at school, you were going to get it with a slipper or the ruler. And you did what yeah. you were told. As if not, you were in serious trouble Danny Edmaster. Well, you can't do that to children in the last 20 years. You cannot speak okay. to them like that. You cannot treat them like that. And they have to be um, managed. And those children that I'm talking about, they're now the professional footballers that we're seeing on the TV. They've never been shouted at. They don't like it. They don't want that. They've not been used to it. They've not been brought up with it. So the improvement in the coaching the improvement in the uh, education of the coaches, a different mindset of young people learning football. So it's been a massive change. And now we're seeing England, I think we'll be very, very close to winning the uh, World Cup in Qatar. Very, very close. Because we have got fit, well-educated, good coaches, good players, right the way through our squads. And it does. it's not always good to watch. But that is the way the football's gonna be now.
3: That's no, I agree. Idea. No, that's a great answer, Martin. I think I think you're right. I mean, look, I mean, obviously, you know, being in South Africa, we've got the most technical and amazing skillful players of keeping the ball and and, and working the ball. And and Bafana Bafana can't can't even qualify for Afcon. You know, we're sat we're set with a, a seven-week break to watch the African Cup of Nations. And South Africa, and not even any, and and no disrespect, but Ethiopia, Equatorial Guinea, uh, Guinea Bissau, uh, Mauritania, and the Comoros Islands, and again, no disrespect to these teams, these are small islands, these are small t- uh, uh, countries compared to Southern Af- Africa, and we, we as a, as a collective, we, we they just can't get it right, you know, they, they with the with the squad selection. As you say, with the England players now, they're, they're educated and the and more, uh, the more focused on what they're doing. We, I, I'm not, no word of a lie. These players, player for player with the ball, you've seen it in Africa. They can do things that only we could imagine. And yet, you know, the the the, the design from these players is is a lot different to what it used to be, 10, 20, even 30 years ago when I lived, when I played here as a youngster, you know, and it, it, it's, it's, you know, as a foreigner, you're coming in and you're trying to, you're trying to help them and you're trying to educate them. And one of the good things about my CPD is that I'm on the LMA website, I'm on the FA website, I'm on the Scottish FA website, I'm on the UEFA, and I'm learning and I'm developing, I'm growing. And, and, and you know, and, and I'm just a little coach, you know, in a big country, you know, but the success that you get is like you say, you know, not screaming and shouting at the players because they don't understand and they don't realise that back in the day when we were told when we were rubbish, we got absolutely hammered. You know, you you, you didn't even play the next game. You know, you can't you, and you can't do that anymore. You know, so no. that was a fantastic answer, Martin. I, I'm so glad I asked the question, Martin. Just talking about
0: um, you mentioned England there, and you, I was going to ask you the question actually. You know, and you think they've got a great great chance of winning the World Cup. Is that two two questions? The first one is, do you think that is mostly down to the to the coaching? Uh, and also, uh, we were talking about Man United before the call started. Why does somebody like Harry Maguire play really well for for England and then have bad games for Man United? What's what's all that about? Is that two questions? That was two questions. Yeah. yeah. Um. Okay,
2: the first one first, um, that was about England, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, coaching. How much of that, you know, you, you think England are going hey, to Mark, be
2: close? Hey, Mark, you can be the best coach in the world. And the Man United German guy that they've got in now, he's a very, 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 very good coach. And look what he's dealing with up there. If you're a good coach and you haven't got good players over a period of time, that's going to fade out <laughs> and you don't win. Fact normally the team that spends the most money to get the best players wins and the team that spends the least amount of the money is going to be bottom of the league. That's that's standard stuff. Everyone sort of sometimes suggests it. So that's not the case, but that's normally the case. With the Manchester United question, second question, I think last year, Oli got something moving in the right direction because... Number one, they were... They, did they win nine games away from home? Some, yeah. And they were outstanding yeah. away from home. Yeah. It takes a good team and a good manager to be able to do that. Winning away is always hard at any level you're at. And he was doing it on a regular basis. It was clear and obvious from the outside looking in that all the players were committed and close and a tight group. It was clear. You could see it with the body language. But then, towards the end of the season, I noticed that one player regularly would give bad fouls, argue with the referee, give the ball away, start trying to hit Hollywood-type passes, and looked that he'd grown what my dad would say, too big for his boots. He started to put his arms out and blame players when they didn't pass him the ball or they made an error. This was happening towards the end of last season. And then in the summer, that player played for Portugal and I think he played in one or two games and then the manager of Portugal dropped him to the bench and didn't put him on. I reckon Harry Maguire was the catalyst of the whole group. They're young, they was enthusiastic, they all wanted to run and they felt as though Man United was growing with Maguire in the middle as the leader. Then they bought a right winger, which for me, Sancho, they didn't need. And then, completely random, completely outside what I thought would be a decent market um, recruitment strategy, they signed a 37-year-old that is way past his best and now can't, won't run. Any hopes of pressing like what they did last year, you've got absolutely no chance because he can't press. He can't run around. He physically can't do it. So you've got Fernandez giving it all this all the time, blah, 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 to the referee, arguing with the referee, arguing with his teammates, and you've got another player that can't run. You put the ball in the box to him, he'll score. Well done. But it's not about that as a football team and as a football club. That don't work. Not long-term. If you go back to look at what happened at Juventus with him there last year, and he was their centre-forward, and the first thing they did was sell him. And Manchester United have taken their centre forward, who was not good enough for Juventus. And Juventus ain't very good in the first place anyway. So why would you take him? I don't believe Oli Gunnar Solskjaer signed Ronaldo. I think that transfer was done above his head. He was told that he was having him and he was told that he's going to be playing. I've had that position as a manager myself. And as soon as that happens to you, you are walking on thin ice. The rest of that squad of players would have seen the amount of money that he's earning, and believe it or not, even if they do earn 150 grand a week, it would still naff them off. So I think the unity, the camaraderie.
3: No, I agree, Martin. I don't agree with you there. I didn't think, you know, personally, it was a good signing. I don't know why they signed it. I I felt the dynamics of Man United have, 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 have been overtaken. As, as you said, by certain players, you know, and you don't see, you don't see that same spirit there anymore, you know, and, and, and let's say it's, you know, yourself, you know, there's, there's big players, there's, 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 you know, what he's done in his career is absolutely phenomenal, but, you know, he's, 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 you're right about the pressing. Man United's game was pressing it high up. That's what we do. We press high up and we make the opponents make mistakes. And that's where we capitalize on it, and that's what United used to do. It's, it's, with football now, it's you know you, you know the things the thing in, in in African football now. You put you let people have the ball and let them play, they will uh, 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 annihilate you. You put them under pressure and you get them to think, then you, you're gonna you're gonna be more successful than you will be, you know, unsuccessful. And and, and that's where Man United were very successful in pressing in making the opposition lose the ball in the attacking third, and they, they would pounce from that. And then they would get crosses in, they would get shots on goal, they would get shots on target, and, and it's not there anymore.
0: Martin, I um, you, you earlier in the conversation, you mentioned that money tends to be the factor determining the success that a club will have. And I'm really interested to get your view on the situation at Newcastle. Um <laughs> You know, what, what do you think about what's happening there? Have they got the right manager in place? You know, what are your thoughts?
2: Well, I thought the performance the other day was absolutely outstanding. Um, you know, I loved watching them play, the passion of the crowd. Um, they certainly do need to uh, sign some players. But I, I feel, why didn't they give that money to the previous manager? Because he's still done okay. <laughs> um, you know, they definitely need to uh, sign a centre-back. Uh, definitely need someone to play next to LaSalle's. I'm not 100% with the goalkeeper. Trippier, I think, will be a good signing. Um, the centre-forward, is he done his cruise shot or his calf muscle? So, he's probably going to probably need to go and sign another one of them. Um, and there are a few players that are out of contract at the end of this season, who they will probably um, go and buy. Um, and they're going to need to do it quick, because they are running out of time. Yeah. Um, You know, they are running out of time and they have, obviously, as we all know, they've got more than enough money where they can go and just sign um, basically whoever they like. And players that are out of contract at the end of this season, like Tarkowski, the centre-back at um, uh, Burnley. Jesse Lingard, who was absolutely outstanding for West Ham. Martial looks like he could be available from Manchester United now. And Aubameyang, he looks like he's probably going to be available because Arteta will want him out of the building. So are these the types of players that are, are OK and willing to go up to Newcastle and put their, um, their bodies right into it? Probably offer them mega, mega money to entice them to go there to stay up in the Premier League. And so for some of those players, it will be, um, it will be a massive, massive payday. And if they stay up, the, the bonus I'm sure for staying up was going to be uh, ka-ching, ka-ching.
0: And mm-hmm. they're only are only a few points away from safety, so you you would like to think that if they get some decent additions to to the team in before the end of January, it really increases their chances of staying up. But is it is it a total disaster for them if they get relegated, and then obviously they'll they'll have the best team in the championship? You were thinking, and then could come back up. It it you know how important is it actually that they do stay up this season?
2: Well, Eddie How uh, Eddie Howell's, um got Bournemouth out of that division to get back up into the Premier League and they will be wanting to sign players that are going to guarantee, basically guarantee that they they are going to come straight back up. Um, So would Jesse Lingard want to go down and play in the Championship? Would Tarkowski want to play in the Championship? Yang, would they want to be going down there? I very much doubt, these players are multi-millionaires, all of them. So so the, the actual financial deal is not the end of the day because they've all got more than enough money than all of us lot could spend in our lifetime comfortably. What they want is success and they want to be in the Champions League and they want to play for their country. They wanted to do well and they wanted to win football matches. Um, can you build a quick enough team and get that camaraderie and unity that we spoke about a minute ago with Manchester United? Can Eddie do that and galvanise the group I think you probably could. I think you probably could, because the passion of the Newcastle supporters, I think, would ooze their energy into the players. And when you walk out at St James's Park, um, it is a special feeling. It is a un- not a unique because a lot of clubs are like it, but there's a unique feeling. There is a unique feeling when you walk out at St James's Park. Um, you know. Uh, and if that gets on a roll, it's going to be big.
0: And the last time they really had that was um, back in the days when they were known as the entertainers, and, and they certainly were. And, and they actually were not far away from, from uh, winning the title that, that particular season with Kevin Keegan and you know the famous uh, clash with Alex Ferguson. Um, do, you, do you think they've got a realistic chance in the next few years of, of getting back to something like that?
2: Oh, Yeah they're going to buy everyone aren't they <laughs> you know all the Both. best players they're uh, they're going to be in the market you know they they're going to be putting the numbers up there um, you know clubs will probably be offering 125 150,000 pound a week which is a mega deal don't get me wrong I'm talking monopoly money and uh, the agent will probably speak to Newcastle and it'll be 200 grand a week And then it'd be a five-year deal and a £10 million signing-on fee and uh, those types of things. And then when those numbers are talking, um, it's only an hour's flight from London anyway, isn't it? Let's be honest. It's not as if it's the end of the world going up to Newcastle, although a lot of the players would prefer. They would, and they do prefer to live around London. They do prefer that sort of lifestyle. Um, To go to Newcastle, can they be okay up there? Of course they can. With the extra money they're going to pick up by signing for Newcastle, um, I think Eddie howe has got a very, very exciting. What's this new word now? It's called project, isn't it? This new <laughs> exciting project that I've got. Um, signing Trippier, I think that's a good signing. The first ones I would go would go and get would be Tarkowski from Burnley and give him mega money because he can edit out at set plays and he can play out, and I would break the bank. If I was them, I'd break the bank to go and sign Jesse Lingard. But I hope he signs for West Ham, of course.
0: Martin, really, really enjoyed talking to you as, as usual. And um, thanks, thanks again for your time.
2: Nice to speak to you, Mark. Nice to speak to you, Dylan, and to hear everything Martin,
3: you're
0: up to. Great
2: to, a you. to
3: see you. Pal. Have a great new year, mate. Keep smiling. You're looking brilliant. Keep smiling, pal.
0: Lovely to speak to you, Dylan. Good luck. I'll, I'll be watching out for your team. And now I'm delighted to introduce Eddie Herzenberg to the Early Doors football podcast. And Eddie is a former professional player in in the U.S. um, and many years of experience now as a a coach. Welcome to the show, Eddie. Great to have you on.
5: Yeah, it's a pleasure, Mark. Thank you for having me all these years kind of being connected. um, It's really an honor to be on this uh, podcast, listen to a couple episodes and the entertainment and the
0: knowledge that you've had on. So it really is a pleasure and an honor to be on with you. And I used to um, uh, be editor of a football website, Total Football. Eddie contributed to that, so we've known each other for about ten years now. I think we were working it out, weren't we? And, and I know that you're you're from Ohio, Eddie, and you um, you play professionally for Columbus Crew, which I think I'm right in saying was the very first MLS club. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, and you've gone full circle because you, you've had a lot of coaching experience. You've you played professionally um, for indoor and outdoor teams in, in the US, because in, in the USA, indoor football or soccer, as you call it there, is, is really big as well. And then you went into coaching and just so much experience um, with, for example, Cincinnati Kings, a um, couple of other clubs, one Called Dutch Lions, where you had quite a lot of experience there, um, and then also you. I know you spent some time in um, Germany, so I think it was a year in Germany, um, getting your UEFA C license, and then back to the US, back to Cincinnati Kings, um, Dayton Dutch Lions again, and then um, you. You also coached at. Um, Real Salt Lake and Utah Royals in Arizona. And mm-hmm. you've come full circle now. You're an academy scout with Columbus Crew. So back to where it all started. That's where you're from. So um, looking at that journey, was was that always the plan when you were a player, you wanted to go into coaching afterwards, or was it just kind of something that, that happened for you? Um, I, w- I mean, I would say it was kind of something that happened. That's kind of been
5: the story behind my journey a little bit. Um, kind of everything uh, working itself out. I'm, I'm kind of open to new experiences and different challenges. Um, I would say once I did get started with, um, you know, the, the Dutch Lions uh, more on, on, a, on a second division type of level, um, I began quickly thinking about coaching, you know, and they were, they were thinking about, you know, kind of the Dutch way and incorporating that here in the U.S. So those guys were, were great in, in, in the sense that uh, they were starting something different and wanted guys to be a part of it. And guys that were part of the club playing got the opportunity to coach. And uh, that was kind of where the coaching kind of started for me, for sure.
0: And you spent some, some time relatively early in your coaching career, uh, doing your UEFA C license in Germany. So, when you went from that um, football stroke soccer environment in, in the US, um, you know, as a player and then starting out as a coach, and you went over to Germany for, for a year, I think it was in Munich. Um, yeah. Was that what was that like culturally in terms of changes and, and the way that that football is in, in Europe compared to the US? Did, did you? Um, see any sort of big differences
5: yeah I mean there was quite a bit of difference um just in terms of I think the mentality to the approach of um of the youth game over there I think it was more of an understanding that um the kids were going to be a part of soccer play soccer and um there was more um or less involvement from parents right away and more of involvement of kind of a disciplined kind of business-like um environment in terms of the approach. Um, not in a bad way, of course. I mean, the focus, even when I did my license, they were very, um, they're very focused on, you know, the kids have to enjoy the game um, and, and train hard. So I think uh, a little bit of the difference was, you know, there is a lot of focus on training hard um, and being good at it, but, um, you know, I, and also enjoying it. But uh, definitely the the focus um, of the mentality of the kids, uh, the mentality of, Of the coaches at all levels again because I I mean I I watched a lot of higher level soccer and that's um, over there as well but also was a part of and able to experience kind of the lower level and the lower level of the youth but um, certainly the the approach and the mentality from um, the kids being disciplined and and training hard and just having like having fun but really really competing you know really doing it every day without even noticing it where sometimes you feel like you have to pull that side of it out of some some kids it seems like it was kind of in their nature over there
0: well um as a as an England fan living in England we know all all too well about the competitiveness of German footballers that's for sure so um did did you did you find that that experience in in Germany because it was a pretty much a whole year that you spent out there were you able to bring some of that back um, and introduce that into the way that, that you coached in, in the U S when you came back?
5: Yeah. I mean, I, I, will take any experience I can. Um, as, as you know, like I, I try to experience as much as I can, but certainly, um, the experience in Germany and being around coaches and being a part of the coaching course, but not just that, but being around, um, you know, in Munich, for example, and, and, uh, the professional club like Bayern Munich, but 1860 Munich and, um, you know, and, uh, there's also Unterhocking, which is right there, too. That's a third division uh, club as well. So they have, they have everything. Um, and the experience there, I mean, I, I brought back um, as much as I could as far as um, training the kids here. A lot of the, the technical things that I learned there, um, I brought back right away um, and tried to incorporate um, into my coaching philosophy, I guess.
0: And you were a pro with Columbus Crew back in 2008. You know, how, how has the game and the popularity of, of soccer changed in those, whatever that is, if my math is correct, 13 years now and you're back at Columbus Crew? What, what have been the biggest changes that you've seen in all of that time?
5: Wow. Um, obviously, the, the game, MLS, um, the culture of soccer in the U.S. from then versus now. I mean, it's, it's light years, I think. Uh, back then, I mean, I, I got an opportunity out of college to, to play on the reserve team with the Columbus crew um, and and train with the first team and, and be a part of that, that, that club winning side and that mentality with guys like uh, Scalotto and, um, you know, and, and getting coached by Ziggy Schmidt was um, probably at, you know, even, even being a part of that was at Uh, highest level back then in the MLS but you know the reserve team back then also and the the you know I just think as a whole now I mean as you you may know that the MLS is coming back with the kind of a U23 type of reserve um environment um which again back then what I was kind of a part of um probably just didn't have the right um organization probably you know it wasn't maybe a focus but uh, you know now the the strides at the youth level the academies that are now incorporated into the MLS teams um, and now hopefully the 23s and the reserve teams that are a part of it um, you know much more focus much more um, investment I guess from the clubs um, and the you know administration and in, in the MLS and within those owners of the clubs now so uh, the structure of it is is much better the 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 people that are a part of it is is much better, um, you know the kids now that are playing and training and are getting scouted and getting being a part of these uh, teams are are much better so um, yeah I mean between now between when, when I was a part of it and now um, light years better you know
0: and you started as an academy scout at Columbus Crew in in August this year so um, coming up to uh, well four months now. Um, What do you what do you take from your coaching career when when you're looking for for talent for the academy who who obviously then you hope going to go on to play for the for the first team.
5: Yeah, well, I guess, like you said, full circle. Um, It's been, you know, since moving back to Ohio from Arizona, um, I've been able to connect with a lot of the the, um, you know, quality soccer people in Ohio and being a part of the Columbus crew and being in that environment um, has been great for me. Um, and it's just nice to be around, um, those people, those coaches, um, and, you know, and of course those players, um, you know, and in terms of, you know, the Columbus crew have a, have a way that they want to play from the first team all the way to the academy. And, um, you know, there's, there's the type of player, but in general terms, you know, I think it's, um, you know, you, you look for the kids that really do, like we talked about, kind of enjoy and want to compete, um, at those kind of younger ages. And obviously you have to have a base of technical ability and uh, maybe a base of physical ability, um, you know, to be a part of that, that program or a program that is in the, you know, an MLS Academy. Um, but yeah, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're pretty clear on kind of the players they want to bring in. And, you know, at the end of the day, um, the, the players that have that, that good solid base of technical ability and and physical ability, but also the persistence and the the right mentality is is kind of, I think, what you look for. You know, kind of when you're looking at younger players in a higher level environment, um, you know, you look for those kids that that have the right mentality to to train hard, to compete hard, to enjoy it. Uh, but obviously, they have to have um, the skill set to be a part of that. Which, again, more and more kids today are are gaining that very early. You know, from Um, a recreational base all the way to like an elite base. There's more information out there for the kids to watch and there's more people out there with the information to kind of give it to kids. So, um, yeah.
0: And and Eddie, what's the ultimate goal for you? Is it to develop players that where some of them will go on to, to play for the men's first team? Is that what you're looking at? And is it just the, the, the boys and the, the men's that you're working with or the women's as well?
5: Well, you know, the, the for, for right now, um, you know, I'm, I'm with the Columbus crew on Academy Scout level, so I get to help maybe evaluate new players that come in. I'm happy to be involved in training sessions and to coach players and develop players. Um, I'm at a, a college soccer program here in Ohio, kind of coaching and developing kind of the older aged player um, as well, with the same maybe goal to play at the next level, um, whether that's MLS or USL or USL 2 or, Um, maybe it is to turn around and give back to the game and be a, a coach, um, but obviously developing, um, players and people, um, you know, for the next level, um, is, is, is what my, my goal is, you know, but being, like I said, being around the MLS level and kind of the elite level coaches and those like-minded, uh, coaches and people, um, that are, you know, at that level right now for our domestic league, um, and trying to make you know, the first team and the domestic league and the U S men's national team, uh, better. I mean, that's, that's my goal is to just be around that and hopefully, uh, help it and enhance it as much as I can.
0: Well, Eddie, thanks very much for being a guest. Really great to speak to you and wish you well with that. Cause obviously still, it's a fairly new role. So I guess it's still a kind of a settling in process, but, you know, really appreciate your time. And, um, Perhaps we'll get you on a, again at some point in the future talking about, you know, development of, of players and seeing how you're getting on.
5: Yeah, no, I appreciate the time and being on here. And it was great to to see you and talk to you. And um, I look forward to uh, listening to more of the podcast uh, that you guys put out.
0: Thank you, Eddie. And we'll definitely make sure it's not another 10 years or whatever it was before. <laughs> yeah. <on>. So uh, <laughs> Hopefully not. Great, great to speak to you. All right, thank you. And our next guest is John Gubber, who is a football filmmaker and Manchester United fan. And he's been working on a series about Man United called The Religion. And John reported on football for the Sunday Mirror for 27 years. And as well as being an independent filmmaker, he also provides content and media services to multiple broadcasters. My first question to you is, what has it been like for you to um, work on Manchester United projects as a fan?
1: Well, thanks, first of all, for having me on the show, Mark. Uh, Yes, I mean, I think as I've got older, uh, my sort of passion has taken over from my career in a way because I started off as a journalist and then I became a filmmaker when it was more trendy to become a filmmaker. Uh, And I've made films for many different football clubs and I haven't just done sport, I've done other things as well. But as I've got older and I've got closer to Manchester United, which is the team that I supported from the Stretford end, I've become more entrenched and made more films so sometimes I've got to be careful and make sure I'm actually making money and not just doing it because I want to do the project so you talked about the religion and for me all football fans I think can identify with with that because whatever your team is it becomes a religion and for me it is my religion not in a religious way but it's it's the thing that I think about mostly and uh, it affects my mood so you know I got involved with making films with some of my heroes, I mean, I, my, when I grew up watching George Best, Bobby Charlton, and Dennis Law, I've been lucky enough to make films with all three of those. And then probably about just over a decade ago, I got recruited by Man United TV. I think they'd done a little, I'd be a little bit controversial, and so say they did a glazer with the sort of staff on MUTV and got rid of a lot of people. Uh, so they were short of people to do what I do. So anyway, I got head to make sort of high-end sort of documentaries. So that for me was great. It wasn't great pay, but uh, I got to make films with more players uh, and heroes that I'd watch from, from the terraces, as I still call them, because I'm a little bit <laughs> yeah, no, I know,
0: I know exactly what you mean. And, and how, uh, obviously, tell us a little bit about the religion, but also you know, talk to us about how you go about starting a film project and then, as you've touched on already, doing it in such a way where you, where you can make money from it and earn a living from it rather than just do it as a, as a passion, as he said.
1: Yeah. Well, in some ways in filmmaking, I'm a little bit of a maverick because most people only make films that they have been commissioned to make or hired to make, but I kind of like fund my own projects in between work where I'm getting paid. Uh, and that's the $64 million question, really. How do you fund films? I mean, I, when I first set up the company, I've been independent now for over 30 years. I was at ITV before that. And, uh, when we first set up the company i was making a lot of money by selling football programs on vhs that became dvd so i got a back catalog of over 300 titles that have been out on either vhs or dvd and in those days it was easy to make money because i was looking after you know over a dozen football clubs at one point and uh, when i ran out of money i was bring out another title put it in the high street and it would sell but all those places have either gone bust or don't sell dvds anymore and people don't really buy dvds everything's on the internet now and that's what's made the business so much more difficult as a filmmaker because there's so much free stuff that you can watch so there's a a fine line between giving away stuff to try and get an audience and making money from getting hired to make films but then of course you've got the whole YouTube brigade with fan channels and some guys are making quite a lot of money by doing that but I'm never going to be in that market where I'm going to be on every day slagging off the team because that's not what I do and Unfortunately, that's what makes the money. And that's really changed the whole of the media for me. They're not just the fan channels, but social media on, on mass, really, because it's a lot easier to criticise and get an audience by criticising. And I put the old, the old school media in the same boat, really, because you know one of my pet hates is the fact that most journalists can write a negative story but can't tell a positive story to save their life. And I kind of, in a way, become a uh, poacher to turn gamekeeper and uh, you know I do call out media quite a lot when I think they're making it up because I think increasingly now the media do make it up and I think it irritates not just people like me but the general people at home because people are not stupid to know when media are flying a kite and it seems to happen all the time now and uh, agents tend to use media and people that run podcasts I'm not saying you Mark (laughs) you're doing a fine job but you know there are people that have got an audience. And if you've got a story that you want to get across because you've, you've got a narrative to spin, those are your targets. And I think that's the world that we live in now. So I'm kind of old school insofar so far that I try and make quality, but it doesn't necessarily make money. And it's harder to make money. It's easier to make money by being uh, mainstream and tabloid TV style uh, and aiming for the mass market. And the mass market only really want to know what's happening today who we sign in tomorrow, when's the manager going to get sacked and that kind of thing. So it makes life a lot more difficult as a creative filmmaker who wants to make quality programmes.
0: And and the religion, just, just summarise that and, you know, when's that coming out as well?
1: Well, what I try to do really is build a brand. So hashtag Man United, the religion. I kind of put a lot of content out across Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Telegram, YouTube. And I'm trying to build up a following because my goal really is to create a series of documentaries that are all branded the religion. The first one that I've sh- I made was about the world's oldest Manchester United Supporters Club, which just happens to be in Malta. And I'm a Mancunian Maltese because my mum's from Malta. So I was actually born in the year that the Maltese Supporters Club started in 1959. Uh, and that was a film that I spent four or five years making, which I funded myself. And it was premiered in a cinema in Valletta, the capital of Malta. So what I'm trying to do is build up a big big enough audience with a following across social media so that one day I can go more towards crowdfunding films. But you really need a lot of people to follow you to be able to crowdfund. I mean, some people think that you will crowdfund something and people just give you money. But uh, you've got to earn it and you've got to build up the following. So that's kind of the aim, really. The aim is to build up a series called The Religion uh, that I can... Sell to broadcasters around the world because I think if you're making a film about Manchester United and the Premier League, you know there was an no, there's 185 countries around the world that buy the Premier League already. So I think that's the market, but it's how to fund it and create quality uh, in a in a very competitive market.
0: Yeah, and I know that you're not the only Gubba who's had a career in, in media, and and uh, the Gubba family have got links, as you said, with with Malta. I know. Um, you're related to broadcaster Tony Gubber, who's sadly no longer with us and, and I actually worked with Claire Gubber uh, in my early days as a sports journalist. I think I'm right in saying that Claire's your cousin, is that right?
1: Yeah, Claire's my cousin and Tony was her father, so Tony was my role model, Tony was my uncle was my uncle and uh, I'm your list of five kids, my dad Ron Gubber is no longer with us either I'm afraid they both lost both of them to cancer uh, He was a, he was a broadcaster, he worked for the BBC, he was more better known on on radio. Uh, But when I was a kid, you know, Tony didn't have his own kids because he was younger than my father used to take me places. So he used to take me to Carrington. Well, the cliff in those days, of course, used to take me to uh, to football grounds to train in and I used to think, well, that's quite good. He's always he's always got a nice sports car and a pretty girlfriend and he covers sports. I thought that's good for me. So Tony was very much my role model. I looked up to him when I was a kid and uh, he had a fantastic career. And he was in an era really when it was easier to become well-known because there was only the BBC and ITV really. And there was only three commentators, three main commentators. You had John and Barry Davis, and Tony was the number three commentator. So Tony got well-known and he's got a very distinctive voice. So, you know, I think I've done okay. I mean, Tony, I thought when Tony, Tony's had a good career and uh, he comes, him and my father, Grew up in Moss Side. <laughs> they tell me it was posh in those days. <laughs> but they were both Man United fans. And uh, funny enough, their father, my grandfather, was a Man City fan. Uh, but back in after the war, uh, United and City both played at Main Road. And I feel lucky. I've had a good uh, time watching United. Obviously, City are the top team at the moment. Uh, but for me, Manchester's always been red and always will be red. And, uh, you know... Our big rivals, really, Liverpool, uh, City. City City, have got great fans, but I w- I've always seen City as a local club in Manchester. Oh, sorry, that's a bit of feedback from me. Apologise, I'll pick that up again. City, for me, has always been a local club in Manchester, whereas Man United is a global club. A bit. The only team that comes close to Manchester United in my lifetime has been Liverpool because they've got massive fans around the world and I've travelled a lot, particularly in places like Asia. Liverpool is massive. Uh, but then you've got clubs like City and Chelsea that have built up a modern following. You know, And you, make, you create history and City have been doing it now for 10 years. So that's a long time. You know, I used to make good money out of selling a, a, a DVD called Man City Match of the 70s. And part of the selling point was they hadn't won a trophy to, since the 70s. But unfortunately we can't really say that anymore. Because they're winning trophies every season. <laughs> It's becoming a little bit boring, I suppose, a bit like what United were doing when Fergie was in charge and we used to win something every year. And City are, are in that mould now. And But having said that, I mean, Chelsea have actually won more trophies since Roman Abramovich took charge. You know, Chelsea... I don't like the Chelsea model where if it doesn't work, you set the manager and you just keep rotating, but it works. And, uh, you know, I'm more old school insofar United don't like sacking managers and it was a big thing to get rid of Ollie. and now it's hugely disappointing because I think Ollie, a lot of people don't appreciate what Oli's done for Manchester United because he's built foundations for the future and the next guy is going to benefit from that and uh, I think United will benefit for a long time I mean Oli saw what Alex Ferguson did and for, for me he was using the Alex Ferguson blueprint of how to build a football club all the way up from the academy and of course, United's famous for the academy, having had youth team players since the 30s. And it wasn't it wasn't Matt Busby that started the, the academy. It was uh, the chairman, uh, Gibson, uh, who uh, had this vision for creating players because he saw a lot of other clubs who were wasting money by spending too much. And he thought, well, let's let's get out. Let's let's train our own. And United have stuck with that down the generations. And we've always done well from it, you know, whether it's George Best or Duncan Edwards, or now we've got Marcus Rashford and Marcus Greenwood. It's, you know, it's, it's carried on. and I think that will carry on in the future. And uh, I think it's good for, I think all fans from all different football clubs love to see homegrown talent getting into the first team and being successful. There's no greater thrill for a football fan than seeing one of your own doing it.
0: Uh, but having said that, um, my final question to you is about Ronaldo, obviously, you know, a, a legend as a Manchester United player before he came back, uh, burst back onto the scene, if you like, at Old Trafford and everything seemed rosy for a while. What, what do you think of that situation with Ronaldo being back now?
1: Well, I think Ronaldo was always destined to come back to Old Trafford. I remember filming him in, in Portugal when I was doing a documentary about Nani and it was clear he had such so much love for Manchester United that soon as you saw us and the fact that we were from Manchester, he was very helpful and he wanted to be, you know, he wanted to help us out. I was at the game when Ronaldo made his, his second comeback, when he, when he made his comeback, his, you know, second debut. And it was, it's it's kind of incredible how euphoric everybody was. Uh, and it was like, you know, we've got Ronaldo back, we're going to win everything. But obviously it didn't go according to plan. And, you know, I think it, it made it more difficult for Ollie because he wasn't expecting to have Ronaldo and, you uh, I think that's possibly one of the contributing factors what cost him his job, not the fact that we've got Ronaldo. We, we had to get Ronaldo, but I think it needed a bit of time to find a new way of playing with Ronaldo in the team. But Ronaldo is just a freak of nature. I mean, he can carry on playing for a few years yet and uh, you can never stop Ronaldo. I mean, uh, the Champions League games that we have seen this scene has been unbelievable. You always know that when Ronaldo's on the pitch, you can win the game because he can do the, he can do the impossible. And uh, I think Ronaldo has come to United to cement his position as the greatest footballer of all time. And he knows that if he can win trophies with Manchester United, it kind of puts it beyond doubt, really. Because, you know, for me, the greatest player that I've ever seen was Georgie Best. And uh, people I know that saw Duncan Edwards say he was the greatest. But when it comes to breaking records, I don't think anybody can compete with Cristiano Ronaldo.
0: All right, John, well... Great to have you on. Thanks very much for your time and, and your new project, as we talked about, is called The Religion. So look out for that. And um, let's uh, let's see what happens with Manchester United over the, the next few years and how Ronaldo might be involved in that. So thanks very much, John. Thanks, Mark. And now it's time for football fans from around the world again. And I'm joined this week by Paul Dorsey, who's a Brighton fan in Baltimore in the USA. Welcome, Paul. How are you? I'm doing great how are you yeah good to good to meet you our first guest from from Baltimore uh, although not the first from from the USA and um, just wanted to start by asking you Paul I mean you could have chosen any any club in in England but um, you chose Brighton why why did you why did you choose Brighton
4: yeah I think it was just always kind of part of my DNA it was just always to kind of go for that smaller team so I didn't really want to be a top 6 fan. I was from, I'm from Baltimore so our baseball team's not very good so it was just kind of that lovable loser type of mentality. Um, started following Brighton I can't remember how exactly in 2012 and really got into the family in the playoff semifinal obviously you know it didn't didn't go our way lost lost the Crystal Palace that year. Um, obviously I didn't know about the rivalry back then but that kind of really brought me into the into the fray and and I was just really disappointed when we when we ended up losing, and I, that disappointment really felt like the catalyst for me to not just follow the team, but actually be a supporter and, and actually have that part of my fandom over in the UK instead of just all over here.
0: And being in the USA, you you mentioned one of the the main sports over there, but but why why football and why English football?
4: Yeah, it was really kind of growing in popularity when I was growing up. So the Premier League was on ESPN, maybe once or twice a weekend, but definitely a lot of the people in my close circles, a lot of my friends started becoming fans of, you know, of Chelsea, of Man United. And so I kind of had an eye on soccer at that point. Um, And then it was just kind of, you know, watching the games, keeping up with Brighton when I became a fan. And, you know, just having that connection, I think social media really helped out too. So being able to follow Um, you know, BBC Sussex, for example, uh, follow the team on Twitter. You know, that was really kind of what elevated it from just kind of a casual watching Arsenal Man United or whatever game was on that weekend to being able to have that connection with Brighton and that community.
0: And have you managed to uh, get over to Brighton to see any, any games and how often if, if you have?
4: Yes, I've been over twice. The first time was actually, I went, um, up to Blackburn to watch Brighton. I, it ended up happening that, that I went up to Blackburn instead of going to the MX first time, but went there, went in the away end. It was snowing. Brighton ended up winning for the first time in about a month, and it was just if that, if you know, if I hadn't been a fan before then that was an unbelievable moment um, and then ended up being able to go to the Amex um, in 2018 for the Brighton-Crystal Palace match, and that was even crazier honestly it was just such a great environment before the game being in the town being in Brighton seeing everything that I had been told about and then having been actually at the stadium and obviously beating Crystal Palace 3-1 definitely didn't hurt at all so that was you know it was a magical a magical experience I hope that you know as, as soon as COVID is over I can be able to get back over there and take in some more games.
0: Uh, um, we we often talk about favorite players, but I want to talk to you about the manager Graham Potter. He's you know one of the best English managers and Brighton up into the Premier League. And um, we're midway through the season now. You you've got one of the, the the best English managers in in the game. What what does what do all the Brighton fans yourself you know other Brighton fans in the states think about Graham Potter and what he's doing?
4: Uh, we we absolutely love him. You know, it was obviously kind of a difficult transition leaving Chris Hewton and, you know, that, that feeling of promotion and getting to the Premier League. But there was always that sense that, you know, the club itself and the fans wanted to go just that gear higher. And, you know, moving to Graham Potter was obviously it was kind of risky. People weren't necessarily feeling it at the time. But, you know, in the, the past few seasons, it's been just a remarkable progression for the team. You know obviously, there have been a lot of draws this season, a lot of Controversy about you know who who's going to score the goals. The xG has been off the charts for us, so it's kind of been that frustration. But there's never really been, at least from my perspective, from me and from the fans that I know over here, there's never been that sense that we want you know Grandpa to leave. For example, we're not getting the results that we want to be getting, but the play on the field, you know, we know that we can actually get the results if we can score those goals. It's never a question of. You know, the tactics aren't right. Grand Potter's not the right manager. It's just we need to get the goals and the results will come.
0: So we're, we're roughly at the midway point of the season now. How, how are Brighton doing at the moment compared to what you thought they might do at the
4: start of the season, what you hoped for? It's been astronomically better than I thought it was going to be. You know, obviously there's that sense around the club. There's always that talk that, you know, we want to be a top 10 team at some point in the future. Um, I know that some fans, you know, that I've seen on Twitter have kind of taken that to be, okay, it's going to be this year. And I think that kind of the more majority view is that's down the road a bit, um, just kind of growing into us being a a solid mid table team. And I think that's kind of where I thought we would be this season, you know, getting more of the results that we should have gotten last season. Um, you know, I was thinking probably around 11th to 14th was going to be kind of our, our place this season and it's been you know as as long as we can keep getting the results like we have the past week it's probably going to be higher than that which is really exciting um I don't know if you know I I, really the the big goal for me this season is again just maintaining our status in the Premier League not being relegated um so if we can do anything above that you know get into, into the top 10 maybe even challenge for Europe that would be a dream come true
0: and looking ahead to the rest of the season now, I'm going to ask you for your prediction on what position you think Brighton will will finish.
4: Yeah, I, I think that, you know, I, I want to be optimistic. I also want to be kind of tempered in my expectations because I know that, you know, things can kind of go sour again, but I don't think that we're going to have quite the, the rough patch that we did between September and December where we didn't win at all. Um, I think that, yeah, I think that I think the tenth is an achievable goal. You know, I think that we're going to maybe not get seven points out of three matches all the time, but I think that you know tenth is an achievable goal. I think that's where we probably are going to finish the season. All right, well, Paul, great to speak
0: to you, and uh, um, you know, I hope the the baseball team starts doing well as well for you.
4: <laughs> I'll, I'll stick my hopes on Brighton. All right, thanks, Paul. Great to meet you.
0: Early Doors football podcast for football fans worldwide. If you want to get in touch with Mark and the rest of the team, you can reach them on Early doors at forthenow.co.uk.